This episode is brought to you by Curb Your Enthusiasm on HBO. Larry David is back, living the good life out in Los Angeles and stumbling through one faux pas after another. The 10th season was hailed by critics as fitfully funny and the most audacious show on TV. Curb Your Enthusiasm is Emmy eligible for outstanding comedy series and all other categories. Mark Cherry knows something about the underbelly of suburbia after giving us the seven-time Emmy-winning ABC series Desperate Housewives. He's back in the neighborhood with CBS All Access's Why Women Kill, which follows three generations of women who've lived in the same Pasadena home, all of whose tales have wound up in murder. While Cherry pushed the boundaries of how mischievous one could be on broadcast television with a comedy, he's even more liberated here in the streaming world. We're talking with Mark Cherry today on Crew Call. Mark Cherry, welcome to Crew Call. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you for having me. The um, Tell us about coming back to suburbia and why women kill. Um, I love Desperate Housewives and this feels very liberated. Like you can you can go the extra mile in terms of naughtiness, in terms of comedy, because you're on you're on CBS All Access. But the other thing that I love about it, and I know it it it, it has your brand of sense of humor. It reminded me of like a Neil Simon. Reminded me of a great Neil Simon play, a great kind of in you know where where characters are going in one door and out the other and the comedy of that. Um, but tell us about that. I know that's, well, that's first of all, I, I, I consider that a great um, compliment because Neil Simon was a terrific playwright. Um, sometimes if you just study his plays, you don't, you know, necessarily have to go to the theater to appreciate his amazing writing. I would sit with um, copies of his plays and see how well they worked just dramatically. You know, uh, the interesting thing about um, really good comedy writing is if the actors want to, they can play it completely for the drama and it can work in those in those ways. And Neil Simon, you know, I I, I read uh, this. Uh, there's an amazing scene. I think it's the second scene of The Prisoner of Second Avenue where uh, the, their home has just been robbed. And, you know the actors playing it, you, you want to get funny people who can find the comedy of it, but on the page, it also works as a drama conceivably. It's, it's funny what's going on, but the actors would have to just turn up the gas a little bit to get to the comedy. But that's, that's the trick with really good comedy writing is that it can work. It, it must work dramatically for it to work comedically and a lot of times really what you want to do is make sure you cast the right group of actors who take the um who can find the humor in the situation and just with a little tone with a little twinkle in their eye they bring it up to the level and you know going back to the original point of your question one of the things that i was so attracted to by the idea of of doing a show for a streaming service and in this case cbs all access is there's a part of me, you know, I, I'm a guy who has regrets. Oh, do I have regrets? I think of every mistake I've ever made. And, you know, so much of your um, 
life is about, oh, if I could just go back and do that over again. And the hardest part about doing Desperate Housewives was 23, sometimes 24 episodes a season. And they always wanted a big cliffhanger. And then you had to keep the story going. And one of the smartest things I ever did during the run of that show was I, I, I needed a break. And I did a five-year break um, somewhere um, after the, the fifth season so I could reset the table. And it turned out to be one of the best decisions I ever made creatively from my standpoint, because I just got to move the women forward and kind of like have a whole new pilot. And so for me, in terms of doing a show like uh, an anthology show like Why Women Kill, I get to tell full, complete stories and I can have shocking very climactic endings. And then I don't have to th then keep telling the story. The story has ended. And then season two, all new characters, hopefully we'll bring a couple of the actors back so I can get my little ensemble going. But, um, but it allows me creatively to, to complete my storytelling. And, you know, the thing about a soap opera, the, the ones that used to, you know, run 30, 40, 50 years, there was the beginning of the story in the middle and then the middle and then the middle. And it just kept on going. And, you know, that's really the tricky part with a, a, a dramatic, dramatized soap opera, be it comedic or not, is that you just never feel like you get to the end of the story. Whereas on Golden Girls, you know, the women, they had their little adventure during the episode. But by the end of the episode, they were right back where they started from. So you reset the table every episode. And you might have a couple of lingering story things that, you know, you would, some arcs that you would tell over a season. Um, but, but that was a different animal entirely. And that's actually, you know, it's so funny. I, I became known as a sitcom or a soap opera writer because my training was in sitcoms. And, you know, Desperate Housewives was the first sitcom, I, uh, first soap opera I ever worked on. And I was the executive producer. So I was behind the curve in terms of learning just how that beast worked. So Why Women Kill is my chance to go, okay, I learned some stuff. I had my successes. I had my failures. Now let's see if I can improve upon it. And I'm very proud of the first season of Why Women Kill. Learned some more stuff, but a lot of it, I thought, just worked out great. And then what's, what's lovely is season two, whole new premise. Uh, the themes of women and murder will be ever-present, but uh, I, they give me a, a lovely canvas to paint on a new canvas every year and uh i don't i'm not caught in that trap that i felt i was caught in for years where it's like how do i keep this going you know it's like the people on murder she wrote every week it was like how does jessica stumble upon a murder you know and that's that's television for you you know <laughs> and why does anyone invite jonathan and jennifer hart to a party someone's gonna <laughs> die jesus and, you know, that's the same thing with, you know, soap opera. It's like, I started out, their lives were very small, but then big stuff started happening. And then you just have to keep the big stuff going. And it's, it's, it's really tricky. So this is my chance to, uh, to, to do more self-contained writing. And, and I hope in some ways, classier writing. So let's talk about the building blocks. Let's start first with the house. A, ho a really nice piece of real estate that has had a murder... <laughs> Three murders. Well, you know, three suspicious deaths. Three, yeah, three suspicious deaths. Is that? I mean, immediately we're in Los Angeles. I, I, I think it's a pun 
on real estate out here, but is it like, tell, tell me, you know, like people buy houses. Oh, there was a murder here. Oh, I don't care. I look at what we could do with the outside. Is there, tell me about that note. Let's start there. Okay. And then the decision to tell it over three different eras. Well, it all kind of started. The, the first idea I had was the 1963 idea, which was telling a story about a woman who finds out her husband's having an affair. And instead of confronting him, she befriends his mistress to find out what she's doing wrong. And I'd had that idea for years. And I pitched it to, to my producers because we were looking for something to, to do for a streaming service. And they loved that idea. And they said, well, could you make a whole series out of that? And I said, I don't, I don't think so. And I think within just minutes, I thought, you know, it would be fun to do investigate adultery over three different decades. Cause I could also look at how women have changed and what women's expectations for their own lives um, are and, and how the roles of husbands and wives in marriage has changed. So that was kind of my jumping off point. So then I, I proceeded to do three different decades. And, um, and in doing my research, we found, I forget what the year was. I think it was sometime in the late 70s. There was a law passed where you actually had to tell someone if someone died in the house. But back in the day, you didn't. You could just sell the house, you know, caveat emptor. Um, and, you know, and just the idea that something bad went down in three different decades and following the lives of these women and trying to intertwine them. It was just a, I thought it was kind of a nifty idea for a show. And there are tricks to it. You know, um, I I started to miss the ability to, to have these three women communicate with each other because they were our stars, but they d- lived in different universes and they don't connect until the very end. But boy, when they do connect, it's, it's a lot of fun. Oh. Um, was there ever a notion because um my wife and i were thinking about this toward you know while we were wrapping up this series and again i'll put a spoiler alert on this by the way okay um was there ever a notion to have an uh like a character that would interlock all generations or did you think of that and say nah let's just i use it i use i used one very briefly in the beginning of episode two because there was an old a guy who lived on the street who who saw one as a child right one murder whatever I remember this and I and I used that guy and it was a, a little bit of a gimmick I used but in terms of um because I, I was busy dealing with the endings of the story we kept trying to find a way to to scooch that in and we 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 tried a little bit but it we didn't reach anything satisfactorily, you know, um, you know, something that made sense. So, uh, so we didn't, we didn't go down that road. Um, I'm a big fan of the movie, the hours, which has similar, um, a similar triangulated structure. That's right. And the more, the more I did the series, the more I appreciated the movie and, and, um, the writer of the movie talks about, has talked about um, how long it took to do that. And boy, just one two hour movie. Yeah. The transitions and the keeping of the themes aligned it's I, and obviously it's based on a book, but there's a trick to it. And, um, and when, and, and it taught me a lot. And at some point I'm going to do another triangulated structure. I've got a really good idea for one, but I also wanted the series to just be 
you know, surprise the the audience every year. I don't want to have to receive, re, um, repeat the same um, structure every single time. But uh, when you play with those kind of time things, it's it's tricky. And I think the next time I do it, I will do what you're talking about, and I'll have the characters from different eras show up, but make it more about that. Um, I actually, these women were created by what they represented in terms of the roles of women. Like, you know, um, Ginny, Ginny Goodwin's uh, character was the prototypical Donna Reed 1960s housewife. Then Lucy Liu plays, you know, a, Alexis Carrington 1980s rich bitch with shoulder pads and all of that. And then in the uh, present day, um, Kirby um, Halbatiste, uh, she plays, you know, a feminist lawyer because, you know, at the time I was creating the show, we were just coming off of the um, Me Too movement and I thought it was the most prototypical, you know, feminist occupation one could have. And so they, I wanted to see those three women in their, their different roles, what that represented. That was my focus the first season. But, you know, uh, season two, boy, I've got a whole different ball of wax. And, and I think, the, I hope the fans are going to really like it because it's, it's, it's good. And it's the kind of story that has the DNA of stuff I used to do on Desperate, but I'm allowed to build to a shocking conclusion because I don't have to bring the characters back next season. Are you, have you already broken story and laid out all your scripts for season two or are you all in the middle of it right now? I've finished two episodes writing the third and, you know, we're waiting to find out when production starts because there's some questions about that. Very interesting time to write um, because I've never written before where I didn't absolutely know what the beginning of production was. So in some regards, um, it's kind of lovely because I can just take the time I want with the scripts. Um, the studio's cracking the whip going, Mark, you got to write a little bit faster. And I'm like, I know, I know. Um, but I, I like it because I get to take more time with it. But also I'm scared to death because I don't know what it's going to be like to produce a TV show in this new reality. So many yeah. of the things we took for granted, you know, writing a love scene now. Like yeah. just having, you know, an actor and actress be slightly unclothed in, in bed. I mean, am I going to be allowed to do that? How much testing does that require? I have no idea. And, and I'm, yeah. a, lot, a lot of other people don't know. So we're, we're in a interesting time um, for everyone. Obviously, everyone in our, our country is affected. But definitely for those of us who do television, we're wondering, how is this going to work? You know, insurance companies yeah. aren't ready to in- insure us anymore. The city of Los Angeles isn't ready to hand out permits to do location um, shooting. So, you know, stay tuned, but it's going to be interesting. Will the, can you reveal if the other character in, the, in season one will be in season two, and that is the house? Um, no, because... Um, we have a backlot this year. Um, we're going to be shooting at, in a, a on a. Uh, I don't. I don't want to say the location yet, but we've found a lovely house where it's a backlot. You know, one of the problems with location um, shooting when you're shooting in a suburban neighborhood is they can get real tired of you real quick because you know when you do your late night shooting, you know you go pretty late. And, you know, I think we uh, came very close to wearing out our welcome a little bit in the neighborhood that we were in. And we didn't even shoot there all that much. 
But I was spoiled rotten because I did Desperate Housewives on the back lot at Universal Studios. So I was, you know, anytime I wanted, I had access to it. So I learned a little something there. Um, but, uh, and, but it will be a different decade. Um, I can reveal this much. We'll be shooting in 1949. Wow. So, That's yeah. great. And we'll have, you know, there'll be a little film noir element to the, to the season. Fantastic. Love it. And, um, yeah. And all new, all new characters. And, and, you know, once, once the scripts are all done, we can talk about, you know, see who of the old gang, um, wants to come together. And, and obviously I also have people from other, many other different shows that I've done, that I'll give a call to. I've, I've had the good fortune to work with so many talented actors, so I'm always, the people I know and trust, I'm always looking for a chance to work with them again. David, do you ever feel like you're Larry David? I feel like I'm Larry David every day, speaking the truth to people, sticking my foot in my mouth and upsetting everyone. Did you know this show is in its 10th season and he started it off 20 years ago to give us a hysterical look into his life in Los Angeles when he's not making Seinfeld? This season, Larry opened up a Spite store to the coffee house he used to frequent, Mocha Joe's, because they served cold coffee. He ticked off Clive Owen, came in contact with a woman who was a professional crier, and he was forced to sit on the side of the restaurant where the ugly people are. HBO's Curb Your Enthusiasm is up for your Emmy consideration in all categories. The um, the other question I wanted to ask you about in season one that was very intricate writing was the polygamous relationship. Now, I know polygamy has been handled before on television, like in HBO's Big Love, which which Jennifer Goodwin was in. But the difference between that and this is, I think there was an understanding between the fam, you know, there was an understanding between the wives and the husband and big love. This, between Eli, Jade, and, and Taylor, not so much. Jade knew how to pull the strings. You know, uh, Eli was very excited, but Taylor, you know, she was, she had a, her definition of the relationship was very different from her husband's. And in this dance between them and their wants and their needs, um, tell me about the challenges in writing that because I could see scenarios where like, you know, Taylor would want something and it would be, you know, sometimes you might feel as an audience member, well, that's not really fair. Or, uh, well, actually, and yeah. Yeah, the research we did on that because I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily um, call it polygamy per se. The, the in terms of the technical definition, we were okay. dealing with more polyamory and my the user friendly way to call it just open relationships. The politics and mechanics right. of an open relationship. And we had a couple of writers on the staff who who uh, knew intimately knew people involved in in such things. And I, I myself have run across that a little bit um, in Hollywood, not as much as other people. But what we started examining is what are the, the dynamics of an open relationship and also in a relationship, what makes it really complicated where you have a woman who's openly bisexual and she's also the alpha in the relationship. She's the one making the money and her career is going better. And you've got a man who used to be successful and he's the nicest guy and lets his wife go out and do whatever. But when one night when she brings her 
other her girlfriend home and that girlfriend is gorgeous um what happens you know that's that's the question well if this if this set of circumstances existed and and then this happened what would happen next and that's kind of how how i posed it to the writers and you know and we really started examining um you know just how tricky open relationships can be because we have decades of lovely family sitcoms that tell us how uh uh, a nuclear family is supposed to behave. But society is go- undergoing the most tremendous change. And, you know, I know tons of gay couples in open relationships. And of course, you know, the gay couples, you know, you've already kind of had to flout society's conventions just by being openly gay and being happy about it. And now, you know, more and more straight couples are starting to experiment um, or dip their toe in this particular lifestyle. And, you know, that's the interesting thing is that there's not really a, a codified set of rules about it. You know, every um, couple who wants to have an open relationship has to make up the rules for themselves. And so it's it was fascinating just talking about the politics of that and still adhering to the idea that men are men and women are women and certain attitudes come to the forefront and resentments and all of that. So it was just a fun relationship to write because I'd never written an open marriage before. And, and I, don't, I think most of my writers hadn't either. So we were really able to get in the writer's room and talk about, well, you know, what happened if she says this or what happens if he does that? And that to me became the interesting part about it because in the first two decades, the 60, 1963 storyline and the 1984 storyline, you know, you're still dealing with... Um, very traditional setups. Uh, the the female grows in power over the decades. You know, um, we we wrote that Simone was very much a an equal owner in her husband's business, and certainly she she does not lack for self esteem or a sense of power in her decade. Whereas um, Beth Ann very much is a very traditional, and feels much more adrift because she doesn't know what she would do without her husband. And here we have a couple of like, oh, we're hip, we're cool, we can handle this. Oh no, you can't, you know. And then that's that's where the fun began in terms of our approach to it. And then a, a very beautiful uh, relationship between Carl and Simone. How how long had you been wanting to tell that story? Because that's a very you you feel you feel that that's a very true story that that you know this is a very relatable story and i'm just uh, wondering how long you wanted to tell it and and were you not, able did you want not, to tell this on desperate housewives but could not no 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 interestingly enough my original con, um conception of this series was i was going to show marriage in 1920 marriage in 1963 and present day and we could not make the 1920 marriage work when i was working on it so I just I just said off the top of my head with uh, my producers I went let me try 1980s, and I I mean literally it came to me very quickly not every every nuance of it but the idea of a a man announcing he was gay to his wife and and she finds out during a party I had that right from the beginning and then the idea that um, it gets really ugly but then it morphs into beautiful acceptance and then the ending that we, we come up with. Because I thought 
I can't have rage or anger or fear be the end point for every single story. So I thought, what's a different way to end this? And because, you know, the 80s as a gay, middle-aged gay man, you know, when you say the 80s to me, one of the, I think, shoulder pads and AIDS. That's really what I think of. Yeah. And so just as I went down the path, um, the story presented itself quite beautifully. And I was happy to find out, you know, that so many of the fans, that was their favorite storyline. And I think partly is because of the just amazing work done between Lucy and Jack, Jack Davenport, you know, and how much you just admired that relationship and how, how it evolved. And the ending, of course, was absolutely beautiful. So I, I needed, you know, that's the other thing. I did three different decades and um, adultery was a part of every single um, relationship and there was going to be a death at the end of every single storyline. But I just wanted to make all the deaths different. So that's what um, was my other motivating force for choosing. And I'm, you can tell I'm trying very hard not to spoil it for people yeah. who haven't seen it. But for, for how, that, how I um, chose to have that storyline end. So... Tommy Hart. I know he's a bit young. A bit? When I met him, he was eight. And you were heterosexual. And now this child is your lover. Who knew there was such a fine line between adultery and daycare? Bugger off, Carl. You have no right to judge me. I'm not judging you, I'm just teasing. If anything, I'm happy for us. Drink? Brandy. What do you mean you're happy for us? Well, don't you see? We don't need to get a divorce. We have stumbled into the perfect arrangement. You will have your lovers and I will have mine, and then we will come home to sparkling conversation. It's very European. It doesn't bother you that I'm having sex with someone else? Darling, I'm gay. Look, for me, sex with a woman is like emptying the dishwasher. I mean, I'll do it if I'm asked, but if someone else volunteers, I won't complain. <laughs> Well, I love this shirt. You might have asked for vodka. I don't understand. How can you not be jealous? Sorry, wait. You want me to be jealous of Tommy Hart? He's jealous of you. So he should be. I'm the husband. Not for long. Oh, what are you going to do? Divorce me and marry Tommy? Maybe I will. Oh, good. Well, I'll get you a gift. Where will you be registered? Fisher Price? Everything is not a joke, Carl. You're not being funny, you're being cruel. Oh, darling, I'm not trying to be cruel. I love you. No, you don't. Not the way I need. I want a man who loves me so much that he would kill another man if I slept with someone else. And I'm never going to get that from you, am I? No. But you're my best friend. It's not enough. I mean, you've just got some hysterical lines here. My question is, and again, the comedy is organic, but coming from sitcoms, coming from we, the, the standard approach we hear about sitcoms is you need a joke on every page. What is it in your comedies where the comedy is organic? How does the comedy work for you? Do you does it just come through in, in the drama? Yes, some sitcoms, I think it's it's actually a bad habit. Some sitcoms get into a very nervous energy where they, you know, if they don't see three or four jokes on the page, they get a little nervous. Um, 
one of the things that was great for me writing the pilot of Desperate Housewives, it was the very first time where I felt no such pressure. I wanted there always to be wit to it, sense of irony. But it's so funny. It was the first time where I never worried about how funny it was, which then became ironic because I was nominated for an Emmy for uh, Best Script in a Comedy Series. So I didn't know whether to just celebrate or be vaguely insulted. Um, but it, it was a reminder that you don't, if the situation and the points of view of the characters are interesting enough and the stakes are high enough, you almost don't have to worry about, quote, jokes, unquote, per se, because, you know, if you're doing it in front of a live audience, you know, you don't have to have snappy banter. At some point, if the situation is, is heightened enough, the audience will tell you, oh, now we're laughing. You've now reached the point where this is just hilarious or so awful that we're going to laugh. And um, mostly what I want is just smart, interesting ideas. Because sometimes also, um, you know, I think it's it's when you push for the comedy that sitcoms get strained and, and painfully unfunny. So the, the beauty of, of doing a show like Desperate Housewives, I could do a very funny scene with Terry Hatcher and Jamie Denton, and then go to a very sad scene with, you know, um, Marsha Cross and, you know, Stephen Culp or, or Colin McLaughlin playing opposite her. And that's really what I always wanted as a writer is don't box me in, in terms of my tone, let me be all over the, the map. And so the lovely thing about Desperate, which was there was comedy, drama and mystery. So I had three different tonalities to play with. And, and in this show, you know, there wasn't, the only mystery in why women kill the first season is who's, who's going to die and why, you know, that there's, you know, adultery going on in the couple, but we don't actually know, you know, how it's going to end. Um, and so that was, that was fun. And also it's great to be able to swing back and forth because, you know, that's one of the things I learned about life. Sometimes life is really funny up until the moment where it really isn't. I feel like I'm living in a time now where it's we're living in a time where it is both ridiculous and heartbreaking. And so, you know, I just want to be able to start with the idea of let me figure out the sad truth of some characters inner lives. And once I figure out what I want to say about the lives of these characters, I can, I can find the comedy in their lives and the drama, you know, but it really starts with, what do I want to say about what I've observed in life? And, and ultimately, of course, my entire writing staff gets to, to weigh in there. And I, and I would like to say the clip that you played, um, that scene was written by Joe Keenan, who's also very well known for his magnificent work on Frasier. And he's just one of the best writers in town. And um, Joe has a, a style that's just uh, so lovely in its 1930s screwball comedy elegance that um, I'm I'm always just in awe of what, what he's able to do. Um, and I'm so lucky to be able to collaborate with him. So going back to Desperate Housewives, um, you know, it's got to be great not, I'm, I'm assuming, not having standards and practices. Well, we uh, do, you know, we do, but they're relaxed. I, I feel like I went from a very uptight aunt to the, the coolest grandma ever. Um, so, so, you know, uh, and, and, and I'm going to tell you something interesting. I haven't said this publicly. 
Um, I was like a kid in a candy store being able to use the word fuck. I was like, oh, I finally get to say that because I swear way too much in real life. Uh-huh. And after having done it, I kind of was like, well, I got that out of my system. I'm not going to do that anymore. Because I think there were only one or two times where I really, really, really needed to use the word. And there were, it was something like I went, you know what? I don't think I ever need to use this again. And, and then that's part one of it. And part two was like, and now they can never actually show this show on CBS because I used too much, too many um, bad words. And I had my, the nudity was li- limited. I think you see a couple of guys' butts during the, the course of the thing and a woman's butt. Um, but on CBS All Access, you're never allowed to show nudity below the waist for men or women. And, okay. uh, and then they had, they had a couple of, couple of words that they wouldn't let us say, but it's, you know, pretty much everything else was on the table. And it was funny. I, I, I have maybe have turned into, after all those years on ABC, I'm a little bit of a prude myself. I, I thought I would really get off on, you know, um, that freedom, but really the most important freedom is just what characters have to say, you know, in terms of their feeling levels and, and the tone of the stories. And so CBS, um, ABC censored me on a couple of things that I, I still smart over. I had one story on, on Desperate Housewives where Carlos and Gabrielle were watching their daughter in a Thanksgiving Day pageant, and their daughter, who's worked very hard on her part, messes up in front of everyone, and she says the word fuck. And we had done it so that we went slow motion and you saw the girl starting to form the letter F. So she just goes, and the censor wouldn't even let me show that. Oh my God. And I was just like, but what what are you doing to me? And, and she, you couldn't, you know, it was just, she considered it just, I don't know what her deal was. Um, but I've never argued over like one, like I wasn't saying the word. I just wanted to see the, the letter F form and she wouldn't let me go there. And I was like, what world are you living in? And I, I wonder now, and this has now been probably a decade since I had that battle. I wonder if I'd have that battle now because so many of the things that, that they gave me problems with at the beginning of Desperate Housewives, yeah. I almost feel are de rigueur on shows today. So, you know, um, I know that they're trying to protect the public, but sometimes I think, well, as the public leaves um, broadcast television in droves for the world of streaming, I wonder if they'll ever come to regret some of their um, propriety. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. I'm not smart enough to answer that, but it is a question that runs through my mind on occasion. What about topics? Uh, You know, as far as like, wrestling with a were there any taboo topics on desperate housewives that you wanted to do that you feel like you have liberty now i only had one topic where steve mcpherson who was running the network for the first few years when i was doing the show where he just had a little talk with me because i had a storyline and he just said no and and it was abortion and he said mark it's because your tone you go from drama to comedy and he says you will never be able to get even the slightest bit of humor in that issue. And I wasn't particularly thinking of addressing it in a funny way. I thought it was going to be more of a connected to a mystery storyline. And he was lovely. As he said, no, he was perfectly, uh, perfectly under, you know, I understood his reasoning, but he talked about like 
we won't be able to sell it in syndication and blah, 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 blah. And I was like, okay. And I saw it and I saw the, the topic being done on law and order episodes. And, and ultimately uh, I think last year they did it on Grey's Anatomy. So there was kind of times where I was like, you know, I, I felt I had something a little different, kind of a different take on this. And, and I thought it was a really interesting idea and I just never got to do it. So, so maybe at some point the, the organic circumstances will form where I can uh, fulfill that idea. But I, I, you know, part of working on broadcast network is, you know, dad and mom sometimes tell, you no, and you just, you know, not obediently. If you're me, I, I didn't, I don't tend to fight with authority figures. I would hear stories about other showrunners, you know, having screaming fits with censors or um, present the network. And Steve never had to do that with me. Steve just said, oh, Mark, I understand. No. And I was like, okay. And that's more about my relationship with my own parents than I care to reveal. Would you, would you ever do a Desperate Housewives reunion? We do miss that. You know, I, I was asked that when we did our final big press conference with all the TV writers in Pasadena that they do twice a year, the press tour. Someone asked me that question. And I said, and they, I think they brought up the Sex and the City movies. Yeah. And, I, and my response to that was, I think they only did about 69 or so episodes of Sex and the City. I don't, I don't mm-hmm. know the exact number. I'm kind of guessing. We did 180 episodes of Desperate Housewives. And my feeling was from an artistic standpoint, I think I said all I have to say on the subject. And if there's more I have to say, that's why it's kind of nice to have a new show because certainly um, different ideas occur to me. Like some, some of the ideas I've done in Why Women Kill, had I had those ideas back then, God, I could have probably added life to the show. But, you know, we were running at such a clip you know, that was my other thing I didn't like about doing broadcast TV. I didn't have time to just take a breath and think, you know, um, I had two weeks off um, between the end of a season and the beginning of the next season. And usually I would fly to New York for the upfronts and collapse in a hotel room and then go, go to the various cocktail parties they wanted me at. But now, you know, we have more time just to think and, and, you know, what do I want to talk about? So if I have any good suburban ideas, I will continue to use them, but I, 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 um, as much as I love the chemistry of those performers and how I'm still so close to so many of them to this very day, I don't know that I will, um, I don't think you can go home again, to paraphrase, would, paraphrase a writer. Would you work with Felicity Huffman again? I mean, she's one of the brilliant standouts of that show. I, I yearn to work with Felicity Huffman again, who, who, and everyone knows she's a brilliant actress. Um, but from my point of view, in addition to being a tremendous talent, she's one of the kindest women I've ever worked for. And I'll tell you a story about that. Um, I've, over the period of my career, I've worked with actresses who they won't like a script and they'll throw a fit. Um, I even worked with someone who threw a script at me because I wouldn't change it the way she liked it. Um, and Felicity had this just amazing ability where if she didn't understand something, she didn't know how to play a line or whatever, she would come to me. And sometimes she would flat out go, say the line, how you're thinking it. And I would say it and she'd go, got it. And one time we were on set and she said, okay, you've written something. 
But there's a logic problem here, because if you go back to the scene we shot on Monday, in the first scene, I say X, Y, and Z, but here I'm saying this. And the look on my face was just horror because she was right. I had I'd made a logic mistake. And suddenly I thought, I can't fix this because we've already shot the other scene. And we're about to shoot this scene in five minutes. And it, my face was just, you know, a portrait in terror because she, she got me. I couldn't even defend it. It was like, no, this is slightly wrong. And she looked at my face and she said, oh, honey, you just need me to make this work, don't you? And I went, yeah, please. And she went and did it was brilliant. And what was, what's great? I don't think but the most eagle-eyed of viewers would have ever caught that slight logic flaw because she just went in and committed to the scene. Whereas there are other actors who go, no, you have to fix it. And I'm not, I'm not coming out of my trailer until I do so. That's not Felicity Huffman. And, um, and let me also say of that huge cast, um, Felicity and one other performer were the only two to come into the writer's room the last week of shooting and make, make a point of thanking all the writers for all their hard work over the years. And that meant the world to my writers. And, and not that most of the performers weren't perfectly lovely or the, the, you know, they would be nice to you on set, but she came to the writer's room to, to do a thank you. And there is so much of her humanity and kindness and generosity. You know, I can get kind of emotional when talking about it because I love her so much. And, um, and that's a very long-winded way to say, yes, I would be so honored to work with that woman again. So in closing, my last question to you is, um, would you ever do anything on Broadway or on the stage? Or have you thought of even franchising Desperate Housewives into a musical? And again, I say that because of the, your wonderful hijinks of comedy, of, of someone comes in, you know, you know, stage right door and goes out into stage left and it's hysterical. Um, Have you ever thought, have you, have you thought of extending yourself to the stage? I am desperate to write for the Broadway stage, specifically in musicals. I was a musical theater major in college. I studied voice for 10 years. I actually made my living um, before I became a writer. I was a singing waiter. I did singing telegrams. Um, Oh God, that's, that's a whole nother podcast. Um, but, um, I am, I am, I'm looking to, to do that. And in terms of actually, uh, turning Desperate Housewives into a musical, that's a little trickier because if you look at the structure of Desperate, it's a soap opera. So part of what was cool is the repetition of these events, like cliffhangers every week and what you're doing. And, you know, the, in the, if I'm looking at just the great Rogers and Hammerstein tradition, you've got your A story and your B story. And the story, if you put them both together, plus songs, there's actually very little story told in a, a, a traditional Broadway musical. The stories are, can be meaningful, but small. And so Desperate Housewives, I always thought, because you are the 175th per- person to ask me about Desperate Housewives in terms of a musical uh, evolution, it, I don't know that the tone of the show would lend itself. You've got those four characters, um, and how do you keep their lives going? You know, you'd have to reduce their lives to very small essences to tell the story about all of them equally. So might there be a way to do it? 
I don't, I don't know. I mean, you can never say never because, you know, hell, they, they condensed Les Miserables into a musical, so it can be done. But what I would love to do is to, to uh, work with some great composer whose work I really respect and, and, and do what it is I do, use my tone, even, and I'll do a musical about the suburbs, but I, I, as much as I know people would kill for me to do something called Desperate Housewives, because it's all about the IP, as you know, um, I, I, I think I would shy away from that because I think they'd just go away and go, well, those aren't my women. Because, you know, television is the one place where I create the character, but very quickly, if your show's a hit, the character becomes the province of the actors who played it. And, you know, um, Susan and Gabrielle and Lynette and, and Brie, they, they belong to those four women. So as, you know, as much as I think they're my characters, they're not, they're not anymore. So there you have it. Mark Cherry, creator of Why Women Kill on Crew Call. You can watch it on CBS All Access. Thank you so much. Oh, this has been a pleasure. Anytime, anytime you want to chat. Thank you. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call Podcast on Deadline. I'm your host, Anthony D'Alessandro, and our podcast series has been produced by David Janov. Make sure you subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode.